a Podcast One production. Welcome to Concussion, where Professor Vicky Anderson helps you understand everything important you need to know about head injuries, the lasting effects it may have, or whether it's just nothing to worry about. So we've spoken about concussion in children and the best way for parents to manage them and see the signs, and we've touched a little bit on the more professional athletes, but I'd really like to dive into that because I suppose the difference between that is the mentality around being paid to play and obliged to play and put yourself out there. So to help discuss this, we have Dan Harford, who's the coach of the Carlton AFL women's team. Dan, hello. G'day, Matty. Nice uh, to see you. Yeah. Why, why don't you start with a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, I am coach, coaching the Carlton AFLW team, as you said. Uh, it's my uh, second year doing that after spending a year at Collingwood as an assistant with the girls and loved it, love every minute of it. So it's now my, well, part of my full-time career. Uh, my other life is a, is a radio host, a sports breakfast radio host in, in Melbourne, and, and I love that too. I played 10 years in the AFL back in the old days when I had hair and abs, and it was great. <laughs> Uh, that's not the case anymore, but I still love those days. So I've got a, a fair history and background in, in footy uh, particularly, but, but sport as well in the last 20 years. So let's talk about the risks associated with sports going into professional sports. Is there higher risks there for concussion? I'm not sure about that. I think at the professional level, you often get taught better. Um, so you're able to understand some of the dangers maybe a bit more clearly and, and understand the experiences a, a bit more often. Um, whereas at local level or at as a weekend warrior, so to speak, it, sometimes you just you just do stuff without really knowing what you're doing. And I think you perhaps can put yourself in more danger at the local level than you are when you're fully resourced, you've got experts in the field at the, at the elite level. What about going from non-contact sport to contact sport? Do you find that there's still just as much risk or definitely more for the contact? Oh, if you're playing a contact sport and, and it's not something you've known through your lifetime and you just roll into it, after playing non-contact sports for majority of your, of your sporting life. Good luck not getting injured <laughs> because it doesn't matter how many times you've watched on television or how many times you've seen somebody else do things. Until you live those moments, you have no idea what you're expecting. Um, so I, I am really conscious of, and we in the AFLW have a lot of crossover athletes who come from basketball or netball or hockey or where, volleyball, wherever they are, which... Um, not overly physical in nature, not, uh, to a degree, physical, basketball and netball and those type of things, but not overly physical in nature and it's certainly not as combative and collisional as, as AFLW or AFL football. So good luck trying to be an athlete from those sports coming in and just playing a game first up without any coaching because you're going to get hurt because you have no idea how to prepare your body for contact. And that's the great challenge for us as coaches in, in, in the AFLW, and particularly women's footy and all the way through and girls' footy um, down to the, the parklands these days, that because it's never been really resourced or really been a thing from an Australian rules perspective, um, we've got great people assisting and helping and trying to coach the, coach the team on match day, but not a lot of expertise assisting the girls to be able to play the game the way it needs to be played. Yeah, so you think it's more of a, a time thing in time as we fund it more as their young girls have more inspiration to play footy from role models. We're going to get in earlier with uh, training and yeah, coaching. Yeah, absolutely. If we get kids coming in from, uh, I think the Auskick numbers for girls at the moment is through the roof, so they're, they're coming. Um, and that's a terrific program to start because they teach you the fundamentals from the very first day you step into that program. And then it's about getting, and what I love at the moment is seeing uh, at local footy level, are seeing coaches 
men predominantly, but certainly women as well, who want to be a part of it and want to coach the girls as footballers, not just coach a team. Hmm. They want to coach them as footballers. And the more we have of those people and the better educated they are to pass on the lessons that need to be passed on, In I have no doubt within the next 10 20 years, the numbers we're seeing and the, some of the danger we're seeing at the moment will will just about disappear. And Vicky, do you think that because, you know, we've spoken about uh, children and concussion in, in mm. kids, adults playing professional sport, getting concussed, do they need to take these same measures and processes of rest because they're being paid to play? They're obviously going to feel like they they need to play to, to keep their spot on the team. Yeah, they've got a lot more to lose. Yeah. I mean, they've got the income to lose exactly. and, and their high profile to lose as well. But I think in terms of longevity of their career, it still makes sense to be careful. Probably in the junior sports, we are more careful, but we, you know, there's not as, as much, as you say, there's not as much to lose. But um, so kids aren't earning a salary there unless they're doing their last year at school. They can have a few you know, weeks off school and it doesn't matter. So I think it really is the, the demands of elite sports that makes a difference. Dan, take us through a few of the newer processes because, I mean, concussion and the evidence around it and the hype around it is quite recent, last yeah. sort of 10 years, 5, 10 years. What are some of the processes that the AFL have done to protect the players a little more? Well, they've done a fair bit. In terms of research, I'm sure Vicky's probably a better place to discuss that element of it, but the Australian Football Medical Association, I think it's called, has done a hell of a lot of research into concussion um, at both men's level and, and certainly women's level of recent years. Um, but it's, it's about the protocols now. We understand some of the some of the outcomes of concussion and some of the challenges that the athletes are facing these days, and AFLW in my experience. We now have the, the baseline scat testing for every player that comes in, and that goes through the pathway program as well. So they'll do the, the test, um, hopefully when they're not hitting the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they do happen to cop an injury through through a season, through a training session, they'll go and uh, do that test again and find out the damage or whether or not there is a, a problem as one of the measures. Uh, during a game, they've got this fantastic Hawkeye system, which is the video system they have on the bench, access to the vision of, of any collision, any incident, so that doctors and all the medicos can get access to, to what happens. So they've got some sort of idea of what they might be looking for. Mm. Because um, sometimes the the participants not overly helpful. Yeah, in that state, um, and then it's and then it's the continual follow up protocols of of monitoring um, how they respond you know, straight after the game, six hours after, twelve hours after, twenty four hours and uh, days after that. So the, it's a really caring environment, elite sport. You don't get that at, at local level, unfortunately, because you haven't got the resources. No. So we're really lucky at the elite level to have those facilities and and those resources for our players. But it's 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 come so far. I remember when I used to get knocked out, you go, how's your head? Yeah, it's all right. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Like it was that sort of stuff. And that was the extent of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Unless you were really bad and you'd start vomiting or having those sort of um, symptoms. But it just you just didn't talk about it like that. Was it right? Oh, your head's all right. Okay, let's go. Let's, get, let's mm. move on. It's a very different game back then. Yeah. Yeah. Tougher. <laughs> well, I don't know if we're tougher, but... Uh, or more stupid. Well, Almost maybe more stupid, Vicky. Maybe that's the, the go. It is funny, Vicky, because I can't recall... Maybe this is one of the bad things about the knock. I can't recall ever having the symptoms that we're seeing these days with, with athletes that are getting concussions, like to the point where they, they can't go to, to training the next day or the next three or four days or weeks, and it's ending careers at the moment. I, I can't get my head around, pardon the pun, the the fact that it's getting become so dramatic so quickly 
Is there a reason why that's happening? I want to get back to your question in a second. I'm just fascinated by yeah, this whole conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's fascinating too. And you know, the more I think about it, the more I think the media plays a huge role because we really in the media hear one side of the story. We mm. hear about the really dramatic outcomes of people whose careers needed to stop, who are, have psychiatric problems and commit suicide. Yep. In fact the very little research there is would suggest that people who ha have concussion from sports are less likely than the population to have those psychiatric problems and commit suicide. Right. So, you know, I, I think there's this hype around the whole area that is really based on a very few studies mm. that haven't been replicated, but it's an exciting story. And so the media have taken it up and I think, I think people are frightened Sportsmen are frightened, and I mean, even kids are frightened. They, they've, they've, if they have a concussion, they're frightened to go back. And so, what happens is they have those concussion symptoms. They're anxious. They have headaches. They're fatigued, yep. which are all symptoms of anxiety too. So, I think we need to kind of move back a little bit from that kind of media hype and really start looking at, at what is the true case for these things. If, I, if I'm talking at a lecture, I often ask people how many concussions they've had and at least half of the group, and you know, these are often medical people, yeah. will put up their hands and say yes. And they'll keep their hand up when I say how many have had more, more than five concussions. And you know, they're obviously all fairly competent people. So we need to just get a bit of balance in the, yeah, well, and the, the reaction of parents too can be, with with all this media discussion, that the role of the parents is really important here too, is to, to not infiltrate the mind of the of the child and say any head knock is, oh, you're out for six months if you're not playing because that's, that's not what we want in this family. Absolutely. I just have been seeing someone recently who's a, a great skateboarder, a great footballer. He's had three concussions, no symptoms lasting more than a day. And yet his parents are wanting to keep him out of sport and that's his passion. So at the risk of having another concussion, you're going to make him depressed and sad. So we have to balance out that well-being yeah. and, you know, and think about what the child's really, what's meaningful to the child. Yep. Having said that, if you've seen someone who's had four concussions in a season and have had a month or you know, two months worth of symptoms... That's a slightly different That's a different conversation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It must be difficult because obviously, I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but the fans, they want a certain, you know, they've come to expect a certain level of physicality in, in sports like AFL. But with that comes the risks, the higher risks of, of head knocks. Mm. Um, does the AFL take that into account? Do they want to keep the sport being quite physical and yep. competitive but also try to keep the players safe at the same time? Yeah, well, I think it's one of the fundamental pillars of the game, um, physicality. Yeah. And that's why we are all drawn to it as that gladiatorial yeah. contest. I think we've, we just programmed like that as human beings. It's since the dark ages, that's how we've been modeled and, and programmed. So I think that's a, a certainly a key pillar of the game. Well, the AFL are very good in their diligence of, of making sure that it's as safe as possible. But the game's changed too. They're, one of the other factors of the, for the number of knocks, I imagine, is the congestion around the ball these days and the speed at which players enter those contests and how powerful they are. Now, in the old days when, when I was playing, you'd have position, positions on the ground, 18 positions on the ground, and you'd basically play in a little, little zone. 
without sort of getting out of your area. Otherwise, you get in trouble if the ball comes in and you're not there. Now, because we, we compress the ground and we have the, the high, um, high half forwards up there and the yeah. full forwards are in the, in the center of the ground at times and they get back to goal, you're only actually playing in a, a, portion of the, a small portion of the ground at any one time. You don't get the stretch of the ground like we used to in the old days. So therefore, you're going to get more bodies around the contest. Therefore, you're going to get more collisions. Therefore, you're going to get more head knocks and, and outcomes like we're seeing in, in recent times. So the game, the way the game's evolved is one of the reasons why this is happening too. And from a girl, the women's perspective and the girls that I've coached in my time, Vicky, they, they love the fact that they can finally express themselves from an athletic perspective physically. Mm. That's why I think footy is really appealing to a lot of girls because they've been they haven't been able to do it, haven't been allowed to do it. And all of a sudden, they've been given the green light, and they can't get enough of being able to be physical and, and yeah. get themselves in Take that those contest. High marks yeah, and, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And they can't get enough of that. So I think the AFL is certainly doing good things in terms of trying to limit, but you're never going to eradicate because the game, the, the physicality, and the nature of the of the beast will assure there's going to be contests and there's going to be knocks through the journey. Yeah. Do you have any ideas on what the future holds for the AFL? Around protecting players, are there new any new processes in the works? I don't know what's happening from a uh, a new perspective. I know that they are constantly re- revising what they've got and trying to make it as as crystal clear as possible. And certainly, the return to play uh, scenarios are becoming more stringent for um, for AFL players, but men or women's. That once there is a sign of a knock, the return to play protocols are, are really quite strict, and you will not be back out there until they they see fit. And I can just um, emphasise that because as neuropsychologists, we actually see a lot of those players who have been a bit slow to recover. Mm. And and our, our views are on whether or not the person's recovered are really taken seriously by the coach. Yep. And that's across most of the AFL teams now. And, and, and so it's really a, a, a group decision between a number of people, including the player, whether yeah. or not they go back. And that's a good point too from a coaching perspective. From um, nowadays, again, uh, the coach would say, oh, you'll be right, get him back out there. And, and you just be put back out there whether or not you were or not. Um, these days, it is totally in the hands of the medical staff. With, on game day, coaches will hand over the, that decision to the player and the staff and the medical staff. The doctor says you're not going out there. And despite the fact you might be three points down as your best player with two minutes to go, He's not going back out there. Yeah. Or she's not going back out there because that's that's the decision that's been made. So that responsibility has been handed over entirely to the medical department as opposed to perhaps in the old days being decided from the coach's box, Vic. Who wants to win the game. Who wants yeah. to win the game <laughs> at, at all costs. So what are some of the key issues and differences between men in AFL and AFL women's? Well, there's a few differences. One, from a, from a football knowledge perspective, the, the biggest challenge the girls face at this stage, and again, like we are talking about before, this will eradicate over time, is knowing the game because we've spoken about cross-code athletes coming across and playing AFLW for the last couple of seasons and just essentially learning the game, but they're not doing it at grassroots level. They're doing it in front of uh, big television audiences, crowds, yeah. with social media on their backs. So a lot of pressure. They're yeah. learning with enormous pressure, yeah. which you wouldn't advise for anyone, really. If you <laughs> rewind the tape for a little bit, you wouldn't advise that on anyone. So learning the game is is the, the biggest challenge for a lot of the the. Uh, athletes we've got in the AFLW. Thankfully, because of the the reach of the game and how significant it's become in terms of uh, the community uh, standards of, of what's acceptable, what's what's fair for girls and for women, more girls are playing. They will know the game from, from seven or eight years of age and they'll come to the AFLW when they get that chance through the Pathway Program as footballers who just happen to be girls or women. So they'll be no different. They'll be footballers. And I think that's the greatest thing we have to do as a game is to make sure that we bring them in as footballers. We give them that chance to learn the game from the very first day they step in, hopefully at a young age, 
and they understand the nuances of the game. It's a hard game to play. Hmm. It's a really hard game to play. There's a lot going on in the game of football. And you think about it from a, a physical toll perspective with the girls, we have a full-size men's ground. We have two less players on the field. We can't run as fast or kick as far. And there's about, I think it's about 60% game time of, of a men's match. So it's a really demanding game physically to get up and back these big grounds with no, not the speed, not the depth of kicking because of the, the power requirements. So we've got to teach them the game so they can, because you go from little local grounds, which are quite small, yeah. and you, you, that's fine, no worries. But once you step out in the big stuff, the physical requirements of those athletes changes significantly and automatically. So we've got to look after them and nurture them through that program so they've got conditioning of years of conditioning so they can get to the AFL level and go, bang, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the challenges. Um, the other challenge is obviously knee issues. Uh, ACL ruptures seem to be more apparent than ever. Mm. Had another one of those and the other day with Chelsea Randall from, from the Adelaide Crows. I think they said fifth in 18 months or, or something at the Adelaide Crows, which is extensive. Um, and then you've got obviously the, the head knocks and, and understanding the game. And I was talking, I think, on the car on the way in that one of our, our great meetings from a coaching perspective, I reckon, at the start of last season was to discuss the injury situation, but more so the head knocks, and say it's on us to to change that. And it was, we discussed about the boxing rule, protect yourself at all times. Rule number one, protect yourself at all times. And that was our sort of promise to each other that we would try and pass that on to our girls to, to get them to protect themselves at every single time. And that's all very well and good from our perspective because we get control of these, these athletes a lot more than local coaches do. But that really needs to be starting as soon as they walk into the game. So you can start to position your body, understand where the contact's going to come from, get your bum into the, yeah. in the way of your head, like all those sort of things. And that's a real art. That's craft of yeah. football. And if you don't know that, you won't know it. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember learning all that stuff back when I played when I was eight years old. Yeah, so. that's right. And a lot of these players have not had that, that grounding. Going back to my point before, Vic, about being so excited and so um, energized by being able to be physical, they get so aggressive at a contest because they get to hit someone. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And it's only accepted on the football <laughs> and field. And you can only yeah. do it on the footy field. And sometimes they're a bit reckless and a bit cavalier because the adrenaline's flying. But if it's it's about habits. It's about teaching habits from the very start and reinforcing that at training and just drilling that that into them. No different to anything else you do as a coach. You're teaching them how to move the ball. You're teaching them how to defend. You're teaching them how to attack. It's just part of your job now is to teach them how to protect themselves, let alone other people. Mm. They see themselves, uh, sorry, somebody else in a vulnerable position, knowing how to protect that person while still engaging in the play. Like there's a real art to that. And it's only something you can live, uh, get through living. So there's, there's certainly a few challenges. Obviously the, the girls at the moment are only part-time, so they're working. It's like back in the old days when I was playing, yep. you'd have a job in the day or you'd go to uni during the daytime and go and train at nighttime. So fatigue's a factor and all those type of things. So it's, there's a whole lot of challenges for the girls. They, they do love it and the adrenaline you get being a part of women's footy is, is something else. Oh, I can't get enough of it and the, the way they want to learn from you and, and give you everything they can to be the best players they can be because they've never had that investment from, from people is, um, is really quite intoxicating. So it's a really cool thing. All right. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on and good luck for the coming season. Thank you very much. Go Blues. Go Cats. <laughs> no, <Vicky. laughs> Concussion was produced and presented by me, Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Special thanks to Professor Vicky Anderson. Listener.